Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Fraud Talk. I'm Emily Primo, Associate Editor of Fraud Magazine, and I'm joined by Brett Hood. Brett is the Director of 21st Century Learning and Consulting and a retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent for the FBI Academy's Leadership and Communications Unit. He's a federal court-recognized expert in fraud and money laundering, and today he'll be discussing the problem of choice paralysis in fraud detection and prevention. Thanks for joining us, Brett. Thank you for having me. Okay, so in the 2017 January-February issue of Fraud Magazine, you wrote an article about choice paralysis using a grocery store study. Well, it was actually a jam taste test. Can you tell us about the study and the idea of choice paralysis? Yeah, there was um, a professor at Columbia University named Sheena Iyengar, and she had a, a theory that more choices provided better results. And so they did a case test in a, a, a grocery store in California where they brought in a gourmet selection of jam, and they put 24 different samples out on the table. And to no one's surprise, they found out that 60% of the customers who entered in the store stopped to sample the jam. They also changed it the following week, and they put out six samples of jam. And again, not surprisingly, 40% of customers sampled the jam. So when there were more samples out there, more people stopped to see what they could find. But what became interesting in the study was that when they had 24 samples of jam, they offered a coupon, and only a small portion of consumers um, ended up buying one of the jams. However, when there were six samples, they had a much larger sales percentage. So what she learned was that if we have too many choices, it confuses us and causes us to delay purchasing, in that, in that case, delay purchasing. So after reading this article, I started to think, how does this apply to business? And how does this apply to fraud? And then I started researching how it could apply to data analytics. And the great thing about data analytics is that there is a ton of information that fraud examiners can analyze. But the bad thing about data analytics is that there's a ton of information that fraud examiners can analyze. So there's both good and bad in these things. I'm definitely guilty of when I go to the grocery store and, I don't know, maybe I'm getting bread or something. I'll stand in that aisle for a while and look at all the different breads and wonder, I'm like, what did I come in for? Grocery stores are classic examples of trying to get you to buy, and they know these, these social psychological behaviors, which is what these are. They know how to leverage them to get you to buy things. For example, by the time you go to checkout, what do you see on the right or the left of you? And that's usually candy bars, Tic Tacs, gum, all those little impulse purchases. That's why they put them there. And what was interesting about this study is that what our initial inclination was, thinking that more samples means more selection, means that we'll buy more, turned out to be the exact opposite. You mentioned that data analytics pulls massive amounts of data for fraud examiners. So could you dive into this maybe a little bit deeper when it comes to choice paralysis and data analytics in a fraud examination? Think about how your brain works. Um, what, is, what interests me in this thing is how good people do bad things. That's what got me started in this whole thing. And as part of my studies looking into this, I started looking at how the brain works. And this leads right to choice paralysis. Basically, we have what they call a working capacity in our memory. It's our short-term memory that we store information in so that we can do the task at hand. So like, for example, if you're typing, then you've got 
your thoughts and your mind and you're focused on that. That is your short-term memory. Uh, same thing happens in choice paralysis. Our short-term memory can only take so much information before it becomes full. So if you can imagine, imagine a milk jug. Uh, a milk jug is traditionally a gallon, a little bit more than a liter, I think, or close to a, a liter uh, in metric terms. Now, could you fill that milk jug with more than a gallon of milk? No. Most likely not. You can maybe get a few, out, a few drops more, but you can't get more than that. That's your working memory. You have that available space. All right? So now let's change things. Let's say that um, you get the milk jug, it's empty, and you crush it mm -hmm. or you put it in the recycle bin. If I had to pull it out of the recycle bin and refill it with water, could I get a gallon in the crushed milk jug? Probably not. That is your working memory. So you have a definite capacity of what you can put in your memory. Here's where choice paralysis comes into play, is that if you have 24 selections of relevant data sets, or in this case in the study, 24 different selections of JAM, your memory is full. And it makes it harder and harder to select one because I'm so focused on which do I choose, which do I choose, that I end up not choosing any of them. And that's what happens in business today with data analytics. There is so much information out there that we don't know which one we want to choose. Our mind makes us want to wait for more or delay the decision. Would you say in the fraud examination profession, especially because a lot of our fraud examiners will be doing investigations, that they probably prefer to wait for more information and they maybe sit on a case a little bit longer hoping to get more nuggets they can use in the investigation? There's a classic example of, of when I fell victim to choice paralysis. I got a case in and it was a $6 million, $7 million fraud. And my options at that point were do the investigation, go out and interview the person, or do nothing. And so I'm starting to think, what do I do? What do I do? And I ended up spending a couple days trying to figure out what my strategy is going to be. And I ended up taking the long-term strategy, saying, like, all right, I'm going to get every single possible set of data that I could get. And so I started getting bank records. I started looking through all the financial records. And lo and behold, what did I see after I started looking through the financial records? More and more options. He had other accounts. So I started tracking all those information. He had friends. He had wire transfers. And I went and went in all these different directions to make sure that all the holes were closed. And finally, after a year and a half, two years, I finally went to his door to knock on his door and to confront him. And what do you think happened when I knocked on his door? Was he surprised to see you? He was not surprised to see me. I introduced myself. I said, hi, I'm Brett Hood with the FBI. His response, oh, I've been waiting for you for two years. He immediately confessed. There was two years where I was debating on what to do because I had all this information, getting in, and continually getting more and more information in when all I had to do was go out and interview him, and he confessed to everything. With the same investigation, if you were to do it over, what would you have done then? I adapted from that point, and I made sure I had enough information to make sure that if he lied to me, I knew it. But... For the most part, I started going out and approaching people right away. And you'd be surprised at how many people just admit to the crime as you approach them. Whereas before, I would gather every little bit of information. And 
as far as examiners know, you can easily get drawn down different paths. One of the hardest things for us to do is to not follow uh, these paths that really have no relevance to the investigation. It seems like it may have relevance, but if you look at the basic allegation and the basic investigation, it has nothing. It's one of the things that I taught new investigators all the time. It's like stay focused on what you have. Data analytics and, and choice paralysis is the same thing. Especially now, there will be so much information out there, you can continually gather and gather information, but at some point, a fraud examiner has to act. And when does he or she act? It depends. And that's where the information overload, when your, your system of thinking, where your cognitive brain function, as long as it's empty and it can focus, then you can make those choices. If you are pulled in and looking in different directions and you say, well, it's time to go out and interview the subject, and you're thinking, well, I wish I had this information. And then you gather that information. Before you know it, a year and a half and two years has passed, and you still haven't interviewed the subject or made real progress on your examination. Or in your case, the subject has been waiting for you. There's so much to be learned, especially with technology advancing daily and there being new data analytics tools that fraud examiners can use and new investigative strategies they can employ. I'm sure every day is a learning process with each new investigation. Well, recent surveys have shown that the amount of information is really affecting people in the workplace. It's causing stress and people, instead of using the information that they get, they're having to manage it and try to control it. Uh, for any person in a regular workplace, how many emails do they receive per day? Oh, gosh, so many. Yes. So, again, we go back to the milk jug theory. The more information you fill up that milk jug, eventually your milk jug becomes full. And once it's full, you cannot focus like you normally could. Another interesting study that was done was with a bunch of uh, parole board judges. I'm sure that you've never been in trouble, Emily, and neither have I, but if I ever do get in trouble where I have to be in front of a judge, I would like to be in front of a judge at 8 o'clock in the morning or 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Why do you think I want to be at those times? 8 o'clock in the morning, the day has just started, your first one on his docket, and maybe 1 o'clock right after lunch, kind of same idea? Exactly. Most of the time, that's when they have just started making decisions for the day. So as we make more and more decisions, we become more and more fatigued. The studies show with the judges that 8 o'clock in the morning, the judge is much more likely to grant parole than at 11.30 in the morning because he or she has been making those decisions for three and a half hours. And it's called decision fatigue because it's been so long I've had to make so many decisions, I am tired. So then we go to lunch, we refill, and then we're ready to go again at 1 o'clock. Now I'm fresh, but again, by the end of the day, the chances of getting parole in this study was a lot less at 4 o'clock p.m. than it was at 1 o'clock p.m. because people are fatigued from making these decisions. Now imagine an examiner who has been working on a case all day, and it's at the end of the day, and he or she needs to make an important decision, they are more likely to fall victim to choice paralysis because they are mentally fatigued. That milk jug is crushed into a really small ball and has no room left for other information. That makes a lot of sense. And I actually, I recently, very recently served on a jury and 
in hindsight, listening to you talk about this, uh, by the end of that day, I was pretty, I was pretty done, <laughs> mentally exhausted. There's a book out there called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow by um, Daniel Kahneman, and he describes the brain as a system one and system two. And the best way to describe the two systems is, um, imagine you're driving down the road and it's dark, and uh, depending on where you live, if you live in a city, obviously you won't run across this, but you're driving in the countryside, and all of a sudden a deer jumps out in front of your car. What is your immediate reaction? To swerve. Swerve, hit the brake, something to avoid the collision. Right. Kahneman calls that system one. That is our reactionary brain. And so then we have system two. Have you ever purchased a car before? Yes. So you probably thought about what model you wanted, what color you wanted, how much you wanted to pay. That is system two. That is the reasoning part of your brain. Which do you think you spend more time in the day, system one or system two? Probably system one. Reactionary? Yes. But people think that system two is in control. System two is like a military. It's a cell phone battery. The more you use it, the more tired you get. So that battery runs down, and what takes over is system one. And that's where we make our faulty decisions. Choice paralysis starts to tax the assets we have available in our system too. Our milkshake gets full of all kinds of information, some of it needless and irrelevant information. And when we get that information, that detracts from um, the ability we have to consider the pertinent information that we need to consider, which then leads system one to take over. Our reactionary brain takes over. It's, for example, a fraud examiner who has worked a number of cases, let's say they get a call. The call says, hey, I've got this embezzlement case. I need you to come look at it. Whether the fraud examiner knows it or not, he or she is searching their memory for a similar case, and they usually find one. So now, unbeknownst to them, they have transferred all of that previous case information into their brain and now have assigned it to the new embezzler. And that is where problems start to happen because as the information comes in, some of it is going to contradict what you think happened based on a previous case. That taxes your brain. It starts to fill up your milk jug. Now, if you get irrelevant information in, or uh, for example, if you've got a person uh, that has embezzled money from a corporation, does it really matter where they live? Could, maybe not, but if it's information that is not relevant, then that starts to fill up your milk jug with stuff that you don't need to consider. And if you fill up that milk jug with all these different bits of information, when it comes time to make the important decisions, you're either going to make the wrong one or you're going to continue to delay because of choice paralysis and the decision fatigue involved with choice paralysis. I feel like we have a really good understanding of choice paralysis and how our brain fills with information and how that can apply to a fraud examination. On the flip side, then, what would be your advice to fraud examiners, either just in a regular examination or using data analytics, when it comes to eliminating choice paralysis? What should they strive to do? What are some good tips you could give them? Data analytics, I think, is a very valuable tool for fraud examiners. They can find patterns that aren't necessarily visible to the naked eye. The problem is we have got to figure out what data sets are relevant. So, for example, if we're doing a billing fraud, I should only be concerned with the billings and not something else. So if I have billing fraud, I don't necessarily care about accounts payable. It depends on which kind of billing we have. But 
what happens is when we start to focus on other things, if we start to take the divergent path, that distracts us from what our uh, original purpose is. One way that you can overcome choice paralysis is pick three things that are relevant to your case. What are the three things that you need to look at? And then even though you are going to feel the urge to start to look at other things, some check will come up or some wire transfer and like, oh, I need to look at that. You have to fight against that. Cover the first three. And then if it's still important after you've covered the first three, then go back and look at it. But this keeps you from going down the rabbit holes and finding other stuff that isn't necessarily that important. That's one way you can do things. You can also follow some other things like don't overthink it because overthinking can do things to you. It can kill your creative abilities. In an examination, you kind of have to theorize sometime about what happened. Imagine that, like you said, you were in the jury. Imagine if you had to come up with a creative idea after spending all day in the jury listening to testimony. How hard would that have been for you? That would have been pretty difficult. Exactly, because you are fatigued. A couple ways to get around it. First is if you realize you're fatigued, then wait, make the decision first thing in the morning the next day or wait till after lunch. That boost of sugar, that boost of energy from your food is going to give your brain new energy, and it's going to help you look at things closer. Second thing is if you know that these things are killing you as far as ability to think, then set aside some time, some quiet time, or, or ignore the emails for an hour and focus on your work. If you can set aside some time to focus on your project, then you can avoid choice paralysis because the other stuff isn't interfering with your ability to think. To go back to data analytics really quickly, I don't really know much myself about the software and its capabilities. I don't use it. I, I read a lot about data analytics. Is there a good way to, to put on filters or to uh, drill down into what you're looking for with the analytics, particularly when it comes to a fraud examination, much like you recommended earlier, focusing on your three main things first when you go into an examination? The data analytics, there's, there's so much information that you have to decide what's important. Many corporations now are going to chief data officers and, and different titles like that, and they're actually going away from fraud experts. There was a great article in Information Week called Eight Reasons Big Data Projects Fail by a guy named Matt Assay. And in there, he states that too many organizations hire data scientists who might be math and programming geniuses, but who lack the most important component, which is domain knowledge. And that's where we come in. We have the domain knowledge. I am certainly not a person who can put together a data analytics program, but I can talk to the guy who knows how to do that. And the guy who knows how to do the bits and the bytes to get all this stuff to come out, I have to coach him or her and tell him, like, okay, here's what I need. Here's what I want. And most likely you're going to get something extra back that says, hey, I saw you wanted this, but I gave you this too because I thought this might be relevant. That starts to lead to choice paralysis. That's 24 samples of jam instead of the six that you wanted. And that's why we have to be careful as fraud examiners. People are going to try to help us say, hey, I thought you might need this. And then once they give it to you, there's almost an automatic reaction in your brain to say, oh, thank you. And then you think, since they did the work, I'm going to go ahead and look through it. Well, that ends up causing the paralysis that we're trying to avoid because now you're looking at a data set 
that isn't necessarily relevant to your investigation. Uh, so basically coaching the person that's helping you with your investigation and telling them this, this is the information that I need and I need you to help me find it. Yes. You in the article in Fraud Mag, you highlighted a case in which choice paralysis might have occurred when it came to data analytics. It was Wells Fargo. Could you go a little bit into that or maybe a similar case in which you've seen this happen? Uh, in 2014, they hired their first chief data officer. And as I was doing the research for this article, I saw how they were trying to leverage big data to get the right information in the right hands. And there was a quote from one of the people on the team leveraging the data, and I loved the quote. And she said, all we were doing is collecting all the data we could get our hands on and integrating it and trying to be able to come up with the stories about our users and our users' behavior. So that is choice paralysis. And what they were doing was they were just gathering every bit of data that they could get and then okay, now that we have it, we've looked at it, let's figure out how to use it. And what happens, it ends up being negative because you get so much data that you don't know what's important. Uh, Wells Fargo had all the data available, yet no one saw that their 8 is great program was based on fictitious accounts created by their employees. Similar things have occurred. Proshiba had an accounting scandal where the... Uh, profits were overstated by millions upon millions of dollars. In fact, it's $1.2 billion in the county. They offer their own data analytics programs that they sell to other companies, yet their data analytics program could or could not have uh, caught this scandal. The reason I say they maybe did not, or maybe they did catch it, was because the CEOs were implicated. Samsung had a similar problem. What was interesting about Samsung is that there was one of their amateur, or excuse me, one of their America directors was sentenced for embezzling more than $1 million from Samsung. He uh, got $1.7 million. Again, Samsung is huge in data analytics, but yet their data analytics programs for the internal controls did not catch a person who was stealing a $1 million from them. 43% or 63% of CEOs said, we have robust data analytics programs, but I'm not sure I'm getting any benefit from them. And that's because we have so much information out there, we don't know what's important and what's not. And that's where the fraud examiner, at least for the fraud detection for internal controls, that's where the fraud examiner can come in and say, I can help you. So I can show you which data sets are important and which ones we can ignore, which will eliminate the choice paralysis. I actually don't have any other questions for you. Is there anything that you want to finish off with? Anything you think we might have missed or people might want to hear? I want people to know that there are behaviors that you will do that are automatic and you don't even realize it. It's just the way our brain works. You think that you are making a good decision when in reality you're probably not making a the decision that you want. If you step back and you take some time, then you might be able to make another a better decision. And one of the things that I employ is that I have trusted confidants in certain areas with certain expertise. Whenever I want to make an important decision, I give them generic details, but enough to make a decision from, and I ask them what they would do in this situation. In that way, I can also control some of the choice paralysis because now I have someone else with the same type of knowledge 
that can offer me advice just to see if my decision matches theirs or to see if I've been victim of one of my biases or choice paralysis or any other kind of decision fatigue, something like that. That's good advice. Thank you so much for joining us, Brett. I look forward to popping into your session at our annual conference in June. I'm looking forward to being there and uh, hopefully get to meet and see a lot of uh, wonderful people. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of Fraud Talk. All of our episodes are available on acfe.com slash podcast and in the iTunes store. This is Emily Primo signing off.